0: Hello and welcome to The Dentrepreneur Show. I am Dr. D. Todd Russell, a dentist and entrepreneur with over 30 years of experience. On this show, we're going to discuss, engage, and prepare you for taking your practice or business to its end game. How do you grow it? What metrics do you track? How do you know when is the right time and what things you need to have in place to create the best long-term value for your business and wealth for yourself? You need to polish your spirit, and prepare yourself no matter how far along you are
1: in your career.
0: Hello, and welcome back to The Dentrepreneur Show. This is Dr. D. Todd Russell. With me today are two intriguing and very special guests, Mr. Stephen O and Mr. Justin Schaefer from Aprio. Gentlemen, welcome to my show.
2: Uh, it's good to be here, Dr. Russell. Excited. Yeah. Oh, Thank
1: pleasure. you for having us.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you both for coming on. Please call me Todd. I always kidding say this. And to my colleagues that are out there listening to the show, listen, the doctor thing is only good when you need a reservation. Otherwise, mm-hmm. most people want to, when they call you doctors, cause they want money. Yeah. Not going to lie.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but thank you. But nonetheless, please call me Todd. All right. I'm going to go from left to right on my screen. So I'm going to talk to you, Stephen, first and, uh, so you are the senior manager of dental transitions and regional sales at Aprio. You and I connected through uh, my beloved friend and yours, Dr. David Rice, who's uh, the founder of Ignite DDS. In addition to that, you prior to being with Aprio or Aprio, you were with um. You were just telling me you were with Ivoclar. Yep. Um, you've been involved in dental for quite some time. Go ahead
1: and expand on your career for us. Give us a little bit. Sure. Um, I started with Ivoclar, a little bit of probably beyond a decade. I was with them for quite a while. I learned a ton when I was there. And I think what's unique and different is that I learned the clinical side. And so I think bringing this to the transition side, I understand what dentists struggle with clinically, what their day-to-day looks like. You know, When you see five MODs on your schedule, how you feel about that. So a little bit of a different aspect. And through that, I'm a CE junkie. I've attended a lot of uh, David Rice's Lectures and and I like continual learning and and through that uh that's how actually aprio found me because I feel like through the better part of my career I just kept trying to grow and trying to learn and uh, it, it parlayed itself into me being able to work with Aprio. and so I'm very grateful for that and uh, grateful to be on your podcast.
0: Oh, thank you. Sounds like Stephen, you are pretty much as far as a dentist go. You check all the boxes with the without the only thing you don't do is spin the drill.
1: Oh, correct, correct, Great. correct. Yeah, I I understand the, clinically uh, the clinical side extraordinarily well. I don't necessarily spin a drill, but for what it's worth, you know, all my friends are dentists. So, you know, you get a bunch of dentists together, they can't help but talk shop uh, all the time. It could be Sunday brunch and it's yeah. talking about how they could do an M.O.D. better, you know?
0: And then they start doing this? Yeah. Right, and they're kind of like showing you with their hands, and yeah, yeah interesting. Uh, we are an interesting breed. I can tell you that much. Uh, um, I can say that because I'm one of them. Uh, yeah. My wife would probably uh, confirm that. Yeah, I'm a little yeah. strange. <laughs> All right, Justin, let's move on to you, sir. You are the Director of Practice Transitions at Aprio as well. You've been in the biz for about 13 years, uh, relatively new to this company. Mm -hmm. What most impresses me as I I was getting to know you a little bit through your website and through others is that you have facilitated over a thousand dental practice acquisitions and close to a billion dollars in financing. I mean, you've been a part of that many deals.
2: Yeah, it's it's a, and that's just a testament to the companies that I worked with in the past with two of the largest dental specific lenders and I had great managers, great bosses. They put us in a spot to where we had products and services available for younger dentists to be able to deliver to the industry and support private practice. So as much as I want to say that is a there's hundreds of people that were involved with that making that possible, but yes, it's a, it's been. Never thought graduating from law school um, that I'd be working with dentists exclusively on financing or transitions, but it's been an outstanding career and uh, very proud of it and made a ton of good friends like Steven along the way.
0: You know, uh, mentioning your law degree, you know, my eyes have been opened up in the last uh, seven to 10 years into this whole mergers and acquisitions, um, reps and warranties. Mm -hmm. There's one right mm-hmm. and that's one where when you present it to my colleagues you know their heads explode you know that's one of the big questions i get as we're trying to close a deal they're like what is all this
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: you didn't lie did you that's kind of what i said you- <laughs> there's no you didn't lie you're not hiding anything right no no i never do that I- okay that's really what this is saying but nonetheless uh, my eyes have been opened up to the legal side of dentistry a lot more than they ever were before Well, gentlemen, here on my show, I really, the early focus is not so much on um, dental specific items, uh, how to spin the drill, you know, what KPIs you should be looking at. I'm planning on taking uh, that path eventually. Right now, the biggest need I see, and it's the theme that I've had for the first uh, dozen or so shows, is is this valuation and planning for your exit. And by valuation, I mean, how much is my practice worth? How much do I want it to be worth? And then how do I sell it? So at what point in your career and from your experiences, do you think a dentist should start looking and start thinking about it, about exiting, about selling their practice, about transitioning out, selling off part of it, whatever it might be, closing the doors? I I would hope that wouldn't be the case, but there are some of them I've seen. That's what they need to
1: do. Yeah, Yeah. I'll let you go first, Stephen. Yeah, so I think one of the things that we see often is you should prepare very much ahead of time so that it's an optional step, I think. Mm -hmm. Too often we see people who stay longer than they should, so to speak, and the practice is on the decline. That's what we wanna try to get people to avoid, right? Where you're not working at 80 years old, and and mind you, if you love dentistry, I mean, that's not a knock on those individuals. We need those doctors, right? They're passionate about what they do. But the goal is to make it optional and really go at the top. I mean, I love sports. I mean, I grew up watching Michael Jordan, right? And so, you know, there's two versions of Michael Jordan. The one everyone remembers is the Chicago Bulls, right? Uh, six rings, right? And then there's the other version of Michael Jordan that no one remembers, Washington Wizards, yeah, right? right? Average seven points a game and one rebound. Like, right. don't be that version of Michael Jordan. Go right. out like Michael Jordan with the Chicago Bulls. Yeah. And I think the, the the sooner, the earlier you can exit, have a plan in place, right? And part of it is, you know, managing stuff like your debt, right, ahead of time, not just focusing. I see a lot of people who want to focus on just paying off their student loans, be at zero. And now they're 45, they're at zero and they want to retire in 10 years. Well, that's that's a tough right. go at it. Well,
0: yeah. that is that is uh, Stephen. Steven. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a quick note here. The term that comes to my mind. Is balance. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. what you're talking about, right? So exit strategies one thing. Leveraging your practice so that you can build your 401k is another another spot. Pay down the debt, but also grow valuation for the practice. Right. Because that's just another avenue. And it's finding those areas of balance. I've said it before work hard, play hard, family hard. It's one of my personal right. mottos, right? There's balance right. there. Justin your thoughts on that that as i call it the big question there
2: yeah i think too i think the more you can play offense rather than defense the better off you are like ideally you would want from the moment you buy the practice you have an idea of what your cash flow is going to be when you increase it have a plan of what you want to do whether that's pay down the practice debt reinvest in the building work on your 401k plan Grow scale. I'm sure you had a plan when you were looking to expand into multiple locations. That once X happened, then you would have the ability to do that. And that's just all planning. And that's not something retirement should not come as a surprise. Uh, dentists spend an enormous amount of time preparing and have the and earn the right to have the degree to be able to set themselves up for success in the future. And hopefully, if they don't want to. They could have good planning and play offense throughout their career and exit when they want to on their own terms, right? And I think the other thing that you you just got to mention with you know exit planning when you own a dental practice, things could happen to your hands, right? Or, you know, plan for that young, right? Don't wait and and then be in a spot to where you didn't get disability insurance young because you could be skiing with your kids and that could really impact the transition. So I think it's a twofold approach of being cognizant of what's really really valuable right and right. and your hands and your toes and your and your brain and and all those things and and preparing for that and making sure that you're just well aware of your surroundings
0: and that is exactly part of the exit strategy is there's a timeline to the exit right and so along the way you have to kind of fill in the gaps until you're ready for to pull the trigger right. on that and that's where, you know, we can, then that reminds me, I should probably have, you know, an insurance person on here to talk about disability and different things. That's one cog in the wheel of that exit planning. Eventually mm-hmm. it times out and you don't need it. But boy, if you did wind up with that skiing accident, you know, mm-hmm. I just had a buddy who broke his shoulder. Now he's not a dentist. Fortunately, it was yeah. his left shoulder, I guess he's right-handed, but there was a dentist. You're done for. Four months, six months, Mm -hmm. maybe forever, depending upon how bad it is. Yeah, but finding it it goes back to finding balance. I'll tell you, the other thing is not to be afraid to pivot. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to share a little bit about my company. When I first started off, I started off thinking, boy, all these large DSOs are buying practices, doing $800,000 annually or more, right? I'm going to come in under those guys. I'm going to find the 600 and buy them for cheap. And I did a couple. And then I realized there was a lot of work. There was a lot of culture to change over. Well, we've been doing it this way for 30 years under the stock. Mm. Then mm-hmm. I started looking at the equipment, Looked good on the outside. Turned out the guts were also 30 years old. And so my capital costs started increasing. And so started to shy away from those practices. And that's why everybody else does. So being able to pivot to looking for other practices helped me to grow my company. But for those doctors that I'm now avoiding guys, you got to start thinking and keeping the practice up to a certain standard. Even though you want to start declining your career, you still have to maintain a certain level in order to get some kind of valuation, or you're just going to be shutting the door. Mm -hmm. As far as someone is looking to sell or exit, what areas do you think they need to be really well-versed in before they go to market? So let's fast forward to you are 55 to 60 years old. You're thinking about selling your practice. Any one of the different patterns, right, that we could sell to. What areas do you think they really should be well-versed in when they're thinking and talking about their own practice?
1: Stephen, I'll let you start. You know, one of the things that I think is really important is, one, knowing your area and your location. For example, we had talking doctor in Sacramento, Board of Sacramento and and, and Oregon, and one of the, the issues they were worried about was the last two dentists in the area had the practice listed for three years and couldn't sell it and had to close shop. So it's planning for those realizations like, where am I? At? Am I in a metropolitan city? where It's LA, it's San Francisco, it's New York. You're not going to have a problem finding a buyer probably. If you're a little bit more rural, like take, in, take that into account in your transition plan, just realize that it might take a little bit longer. The other portion of it is just really increasing your profitability, making sure you have strong cash flow, making sure your books are clean. You know, we cannot tell you the number of times we'll look at a tax return and the profit and loss statements don't reconcile at all. Or, you know, they're they're running five businesses through the practice, they're they're lecturing, they're they sell hand pieces on the side and everything's in the in the PL and tax return. And you're like, How do you separate all of this? And really just make sure you have very good systems in place. So whoever buys it is not seemingly chaotic, right? I, I cannot tell you the number of things I've seen where people buy a practice and it seems like the staff is leaving, the systems are falling apart, the car, you know, the wheels are coming off the car, things of that nature. And also try to keep your books as clean as you can. And no one likes to practice on the decline, right? That's just a red flag in general. And so you try to keep it stable to up, um, you know, focus on getting your hygiene recall very strong. That is always the, the right way to kind of run the practice and the passive, I would say. And then it, it, uh, it's easier to sell practices with very strong hygiene.
2: Justin, your thoughts? The only thing I'd add is, is what do you want to do after you sell? Because that changes the entire dynamic of the deal. If you want to work for another five years, then an associate doctor is probably not the best fit for you to look for a purchase. If you want to work for six months after the sale, that changes your buyer, which changes your deal structure. Like, map out and have a good idea what is your goal when you do sell. This is not a house. This is not a car doctor. I'm, I'm sorry. You're going to have to be involved with this process. This isn't something you hand to us and just say, hey, do this for me. It right. requires input. It requires thought process. And it requires a lot of what do you want out of this transition? Because if you want something, then it, then we got to give something to you when we put a buyer in front of you. And that's one thing I just think that doctors don't do. They think they want to sell. Well, What's that mean? And the other question I ask is, can you afford to sell? Have you talked to your financial planner? Have you had that conversation? Like, are you just thinking you're just tired of the HR stuff and selling might not even be in the realm of possibility because you have two kids in college? So take some steps to make sure it's even an option is step one.
0: I was talking to a gentleman just last week. Um, he's going to be on my show. He's He's an attorney who focuses on mergers and acquisitions. And he said exactly that. Maybe it's maybe it's something you guys learn in law school. But he said exactly <laughs> that. He said, "Can you retire? Are you ready to retire? You know." And it's really something you have to think about. Another example is Stephen. I'm to touch back on what, a little bit on what you said. I more recently uh, came across a longtime friend of mine. Well, I shouldn't say time, but a, a friend, a more recent friend of mine, an older gentleman, and he had this idea about his business, not dental but he he built it up and he understood he could build it up he could sell off a piece of it and then whether that was it wasn't to an associate it was actually to another group who came in and then they added value by being on board and then they grew it a little bit again and then he sold off always maintaining controlling interest until that point that he had sold off enough that he didn't have controlling interest but you know as dentists we could very easily do that with associates but you have right. to start thinking about that well before you don't think about that 2 years before retirement you think about that 20 25 years that that should be your vision. Okay so you guys have obviously been a part a big part and and by the way folks um, if you go to if if you go to Aprio, aprio.com um that is the website for the company that these two gentlemen are with Excellent company, great. They're, they've got their hands on a lot of other things, but they are experts in this field, in the dental space in particular, on mergers and acquisitions, selling, buying, helping transitions with all levels of doctors. Um, what are a few things you would change about that process, though? Because my experience is that they're all, every deal is different, but that the process can be pretty intense, especially for someone who's not aware of what they're about to step into. What would you guys change about the process right now? The transition process?
1: uh, You know, one of the things that we're trying to do is streamline that process Mm -hmm. for our buyers and our sellers and, and kind of coaching them along. And I think one of the big things is to establish a good cadence up front and and have a framework to make it a successful transition for the buyer and the seller, right? I think the typical model is you have two people on two ends, and they basically argue until the last minute, and then hopefully it closes, right? That's been the traditional model. Our goal is to hopefully bring a qualified buyer in. They understand what the potential for the practice is. You know, One of the things I try to do because I came from the clinical is understand the skill set, right? And I don't think a lot of people can speak to that. If you're a buyer, I'm a seller. I restored 50 implants last year and you did and you place implants, it's one of those conversations. Well, here's your potential on this practice, right? You you do endo, I don't do endo, I refer out, here's how many I referred out, things of that nature. And really, I think if you can set the right expectations up front, it can really help streamline the process and having good processes in place, having good language in the LOI, good language in the APA just and really being clear about what the expectations are on both ends from both attorneys and both parties and bankers we can kind of push that along and hopefully minimize the amount of anxiety through that process Mm -hmm. justin Yeah. And
2: I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, right? Like if if you do your job as a transition team and transition advisors and over-communicate, I think that takes care of itself. I think a lot of the frustration I have with the transition industry right now is there's all this information floating out there and doctors are getting ads dropped off at their office and and to purchase and they're they're not accurate. And when you dial down and you call people out and, and they'll get an offer that's You know, two million dollars, and the reality is, it's it's seven hundred thousand with a three hundred thousand dollars earnout and two hundred thousand in deferred comp if you stay on for five years and hit all your targets and grow twenty percent. It's like Mm -hmm. same thing with kids out of dental school. It's like you can't own your own practice. Like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can within six months or less, even if you got four hundred fifty thousand dollars of student loan debt. Like. Don't pay attention to a lot of the things that are trying to, you know, rattle the industry and get the noise, and just look at what's in your best interest. And it, I think that's my most frustrating part, right? About that, at least something I would change is the amount of disinformation that currently sits in the market.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. great point. And you're absolutely right, and you're right that bait and switch on how much your practice is worth yeah. is a is a very interesting one.
2: Everybody's got a friend that sold their practice for 7 million dollars, right? And it was weird because it was only doing 600,000 in production. But everybody's got one of those friends, right? right. Yeah, right, right.
0: Right. right. Which right. is actually a good a good segue into somewhat of my next question, <laughs> which is it has to do with private equity because that's the right, that's the big money players right now currently in this space. And do you have any words, thoughts, wisdom, descriptions of these entities and their influence on the world of dentistry? Why don't we go back to you, Justin, to start? Because you look Uh, like you're chomping at the bit to
2: answer. Yeah, because I I think this one harps on another point. Steve and I are blessed to work with around, I don't know, five to 15 dental-specific lenders, right, in the country that are lending money exclusively to dentists for private practice purchases, for startups. And I think a lot of the conversation is about all of the, uh, you know, dental world going into a DSO-type mode that's not necessarily true because there's still 10 15 20 billion dollars a year being lent to young dentists or doctors that might not have you know three four five six seven even ten locations right like that is a big piece of the market i think the private equity piece gets the most attention because candidly they have a lot of money to do marketing and to advertising and to get into dental schools early so I just caution that there are still options right, for people in terms of transitioning and se- selling. And it's worth seeing it. It hasn't changed over the last 24 or 36 months. Like Both markets are healthy. The DSO market is healthy and fits for the right buyer and the right seller, as does the associate or, or maybe like practice owner of less than five. So I think that that's one of the things that I think the influence is there, but it's more fair... And more broadly based than what might be out in the
1: market. Stephen, your thoughts on that? On um... you know, one of the things that to clarify about the DSO things, I, I think sometimes they do get a bad rap, and, and doctors look at it from a clinical aspect, right? They'll say, "Oh, those guys are just a mill" or or whatever. I think to clarify what what they do and the the part they play within that that dental economy is they provide access to care for a group that wouldn't necessarily go to a PPO fee for service office, right? They may be Medicaid. They may just want to get out of pain. It's transactional dentistry. And to a certain part, you kind of need that, right? It's not necessarily for everyone, right? And we can agree that the person that just wants an extraction versus an MOD, the are probably not going can come to you anyway, mm-hmm. just as a fair statement. I think that's number one. I think the other part is uh, to Justin's Point and you know that six hundred thousand dollars office that sells for a billion dollars, right? Like, do your due diligence, right? What What does that look like? I mean, here at Appru, we've examined, we've had doctors that get five offers from five different DSOs, and we'll help them examine it and comb through, like, what makes sense for you, right? Are you two years out? Are you five years out? Are you seven years out? Like, what does that look like? And this all matters and goes back to your first question about planning, things of that nature, and. Really, yeah, on the back end, like what's that tax implication look like for you as a seller as well? Like these things matter. It's not just the one thing, or you know, yeah. No, I, I, no, if I no. can say anything, the due diligence will probably be the biggest part.
0: Yeah, uh, all, all valid mm-hmm. points. It's uh, well, first of all, you know, the the private equity heavy money in the space, and they're in it because dentistry is really profitable, right? We all mm-hmm. know. That. we're talking about 20% plus margins. And we know that, you know, money people go where there's money. So, but then they start to control and they start to, you know, there are some examples where they do start to put quotas and different things. I see that landscape changing though. I think that It's changing to the point where there are more doctor voices involved saying, look, we can't keep going this way. Our dentists are not going to be transactional. I love that term, by the way, Stephen, the transactional dentistry, there is relationship. That's what I preach. That's what I preach to my associates. You need to develop relationships, become marketing costs go significantly down when it's handshakes and hugs, get people to come in the door and you develop lifelong relationships with your patients, Um, you know, so private equity coming in and helping with a lot of the things, I think they've helped dentistry systemize itself. Um, but on the other side of things, they also start to—I um, I always complain that they don't—they don't get in the weeds. Dentistry is—you know—you have to get in the weeds and see what this business is like. It's not like uh, making widgets. It's—it's it's a whole different ball game down in those offices. Um, you just don't don't—you uh, know—oh, go doctor, just go sell twenty thousand dollars a day of treatment plans. Yeah, right. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So nah. anyhow. Um, you know we discuss a lot of valuations and we want to work towards having the highest valuation prior to exit and i know you guys have already started at you're unfortunately you're killing some of my questions i got to tell you cuz you're already hitting on some of them right you already talked about systems but when it comes to getting you know the the biggest valuation prior to an exit where have you seen and maybe this is a good way to say tell me a story about a doc that did some great things to get a great valuation and another doc who never got there and had to sell for a smaller amount for a different reason. I know it kind of changed it. By the way, folks, what happens on my show is I send these guys out like a kind of an agenda of questions. And uh, so we can kind of frame where we're going to go with the conversation. Uh, So every once in a while, though, uh, tangents, as everyone's heard on the show, I say that a lot and now I'm throwing a curveball. So Who wants to go first with the kind of the heaven and the hell transactions that you've seen happen, and, and what were the better parts of it? And I'll say, I'll
2: say this: to say, like you either get rewarded during the the time as a business owner if you're able to run things through the office and and get the advantage, but when it comes time to sell, because your financials are going to have co mingle and and things that shouldn't be in there, you're kind of going to get exposed during that process. If you're to keep clean financials, right, and do don't run personal items through your business and actually keep them you are going to be much better off. A bank, someone like us are going to look at these financials and know within five minutes, hey, you got a 44% gross margin. It is ahead of the curve. This thing is going to be marketable. It's going to be easy to sell. We are going to have no problem solving it. When we get an office that's got a 21% margin, Right, like the industry knows the margins, we're going to have to see why are you 19% off? Because you've been running all this stuff through here. You've been taking your family vacation there. Right. And I understand it. I'm not saying it's wrong. We're not the IRS, but that will have an effect when you go to sell because people are going to analyze your tax returns. Stephen said, if there's a drop, why is it a drop? Why? You're better off selling two years beforehand and have it spike up and really crank out your last two years and then just retire sooner than just steadily let it decline. Mathematically, you can make more money by increasing your profitability in the last two to three years and sell versus staging off your sale for five, six, seven years, because someone's going to ask what's wrong. Right. Why is it doing this? The reality is you, you might say he or she just took a couple extra days off. It's going to scare a bank. It's going to scare a buyer. It's going to scare someone like us if we're on the other side of the deal, looking at a buyer side rep. So just be cognizant of the fact that your financials matter. And there are going to be a lot of smart people looking at them, asking questions that are not from the IRS, but they're going to want to understand the cash flow
0: docs that I have uh, consulted or strategized for I tell them look at you can create these little subcategories that when someone runs a profit and loss and you just get the you just get the main categories in the chart of accounts but you can have subcategories that you don't have to show those right mm-hmm. but then you can you can take those out mm-hmm. so you know if you buy you know circus tickets every year for you know your entire family put that line item in there under circus tickets and and but then don't just take it out Mm-hmm. And keep track of those little things. Like you said, Justin, you're not saying don't do it. You're just saying be aware of it and be ready to, to defend it, really, is what it comes right. down to. Right. And,
2: and here's what they cost every year. Here's my receipt. Guess what? A bank or us will add that back because that would be owner's comp because the new owner is not going to buy circuit t- circus tickets. Right? right. But if you don't provide that and it's just a Costco card filled with a bunch of stuff and you can't decipher what's office or what's personal. All of that expense is going to get related to an office expense, right? So be smart about it. Yeah, And documents tickets,
0: by
1: the way, I, I pulled that right out. I don't know where yeah. I pulled that circus tickets. But anyhow, Stephen, your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, to, to kind of echo what Justin said, I mean, I remember this very vividly. I had a friend in Orange County who, you know, he was doing 1.2 and he had a grandbaby. And, you know, that usually starts to decline. He's like, no, nah, I don't think I want to sell. And the guy was already 65 He's like, I like dentistry, and you know, a few years go by. Then it's like, I'm five days a week. Now I'm four. Mm -hmm. Now I'm three. Now I'm two. And by the end of it, the practice was doing three hundred thousand. And you're like, look, that means it might sell for two hundred, maybe one fifty at that point. To Justin's point, you would have been better off selling at one point two million dollars and just working back a few days a week as an associate, right? Exactly. Um, You know, and and we see that often. We see that often, and. I think one of the one of the things that's also tough is people that are indecisive. We see that a lot sometimes. Mm. You know, I had one where we settled on a price, we said we're gonna market, we got them the offer, and on the price we settled on, and all of a sudden it was like, no, 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 my practice is worth three hundred thousand dollars more than that. It's like you're not even producing that, you know. Right. So just being
0: aware of that. Right. It used to do. So therefore I should get paid for what it used to do. I don't, right. I think you, one of you said it earlier. Well, you know, I don't do, I don't do endo, but you know, well, I refer a lot out. So you should pay me for what you might be able to right. do because you have the skill set. No, that's not how it works is what have you done for me lately? It's right. the trailing 12 months. You just uh, Justin, you even said the trailing 24 months, but it's the trailing right. 12 months that are, that are so important. So don't right. let it decline, sell it now, and then just become an associate, work for the doc. If I was buying the practice, I'd love nothing more than to say, hey, let's go from four to three to two, and then you can work six days a month. I'd love to keep you
2: around, you know, mm-hmm. as it grows. And, okay. Um, and Todd, what, if you're walking into a house, right? And I always say this and, and sellers will say this to us all the time. Well, this could be a X practice if somebody else did X. And I said, if you ever went into a house that you're looking to purchase, and if the seller told you, hey, have I upgraded the countertops and did all this stuff? Right. This could be worth 550, which would, I'm asking for it. You'd be like, no, it's worth 450 because your countertops are not upgraded and you're not there. They go all off the historical data. Yeah, not time. potential. Potential means nothing in a transition sale. Exactly. Exactly. And this goes back to I
0: referenced this before, this article I wrote for acquisition affectionado, dear 35-year-old self. You have to be thinking now at 35, and that's the number I sort of picked. But where you're going to be in 25 years? Start thinking about it. No, at 55, I'm going to start looking for the buyer. Who mm-hmm. want to retire at 60? Right. You know? Okay. A fun one. What's one of the worst transactions you've actually seen? You have one like that stands out. Usually, there's a best and a worst. Mm-hmm. You got one that stands
1: out. Steven, you want to go first? Yeah, I had one. I'm not going to say where it's at. You know that the practice was doing about 500 thousand. On the financials, they were negative. We were putting money into the business, oh. so the cash flow was just not there in general. And one of the issues was it was in a very high rent area. And to give you an idea, that rent was one hundred forty thousand dollars a year on a practice doing less than five hundred thousand dollars. And they were putting money in, and they couldn't wrap their head around why the practice was valued at two fifty to two seventy five to three hundred. And they're like to your point, I used to do a million. You're like, that's great. Yeah. But you're not doing a million. And that, that's one of the worst. And I'll say as a side note, one of the worst phone calls I've gotten is uh, is a guy who's like, I'm having open heart surgery in two weeks. Like that's terrible. Like you don't want to see that either. Like, again, it's important to plan this stuff out.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a common one I've gotten is doctors are called. and They'll say, Hey, worst case scenario, their lease expires in six months. And I'm like, you knew it was expiring. For the past five years right now you've brought a third party in that can control your destiny and if they do not assign or extend the lease no one is coming into this place so because you this has happened dozens of times they don't they don't look at their lease yeah right, right. you don't want third parties in control of yeah. your destiny and a landlord can control your destiny and your ability to, to sell your practice review your lease Get as many options as you can. We've had one as, a, as a, a month ago where we've had people come in and say, hey, I only got a year and a half left. Mm-hmm.
0: But- yeah. You know what? In fact, when I was uh, kind of prepping for the show today, I saw something on your site, one of your bios about real estate. And my first guest, uh, Chris Vanderford, who I think you gentlemen need mm-hmm. me. He's a transition one. So he's a dental broker. Sharp as a tack. Great guy. We talk about it all the time, and you've probably seen with other brokers, real estate is the number one thing that kills a deal, mm-hmm. right? right? And I tell doctors all the time, look, if you own the building, that's great. If you want to sell a practice and be a landlord and, and, and get that residual income, that's great. But have in place good, solid leases. I personally like long-term leases. Make them clean, make them simple, triple net. Here's whatever. You know, the landlord, sir, all you do, or ma'am, all you do is get a check from me. I mm-hmm. got everything. If it's over a certain right. dollars, I'll call you. I'll tell you I need a quote. I'll get two. We're done. But make them long term leases. And when you go to sell, make sure that's in place, right? Make sure a good quality lease is in place.
2: Mm-hmm. That and was- if you're the and if you're the buyer, right? Always get a write a first refusal on the property. You might not have the cash to buy it later, right? At the time of when you purchase the practice, but always have that option.
0: It makes me laugh. I mean, over the years I've owned real estate. and you know sometimes the the uh, landlords or the owners of these properties think they are worth a billion mm-hmm. dollars. The property is only worth the value of the lease itself. It's math. Mm-hmm. It's really just math and location, 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 right? So if you're at Maine and Maine, yeah, it's going to have a higher value than if you're, you know out in Timbuktu, but still, it's just it's a math equation to figure it out. So make sure you're paying attention. This goes back to getting the best advice. Again, don't just go with your next door neighbor unless he or she is deep in the dental world and has seen these kind of things before. All right. You know, we talk a, a lot of negative things like what not to do. So before I get into my final question, listen, dentistry is an exciting place to be. You can be an owner operator. It's I think you're outside of the world of what we've seen medicine go through with HMOs and you know, capitation and all that stuff. You can choose to be a part of that in dentistry, but you can choose not to. I think it's a great profession. I think it's a time honored profession. I think we've demonstrated recession. We've demonstrated a recession. We've demonstrated a dot-com bubble burst, and we've demonstrated the survivability of a of a worldwide pandemic. It's mm-hmm. a great place to be. Um what would you tell one seller today? I'm sorry, one buyer, young buyer today about their future of owning a practice. Exciting things, gentlemen,
1: exciting things. Stephen, you, you know, for me, I think one of the things that's really interesting, just from a mental standpoint, your formal training is to diagnose, look for disease and issues. And so when doctors come out of school, they can't help but pursue everything in the same manner, which is look for the flaws. Why is it gonna fail? Why will I go bankrupt? Why will this not work? Right. And I tell a lot of young doctors, I'm like, you know, they look at the practice and say, what if I go bankrupt? I'm like, what if you're wildly successful? Hmm. Right? right? Like no one likes that side of the coin. I think it's a very good profession, even with the the high student loan debt, I think the amount you can make over time, you can control your own destiny. I think that's probably the biggest thing. It's it, it's it's still a very solid profession where you can do very very well, just in general. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity out there because dental, as a whole, from a, a patient to doctor ratio is extraordinarily underserved. Right? The amount of patients you guys get through on a daily basis that will tell you something like, "I haven't been a dentist in ten years." How often do you hear something like that? Right? Every day. Daily. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that as a profession should be a signal to say, Hey, there's a lot of opportunity out there. We just need to get better at creating value around dentistry to bring patients in as an aside, think about what the gotten milk commercial did for milk, right? Like we need that in dentistry. Can we get people to value dentistry more? Because again, it's as a population, maybe 30% go consistently 20 something. I wouldn't even say half at this point, 60% of all patients, people with dental insurance use it. That's just those with
0: dental insurance. Correct. Uh, Justin, your comments on this? Uh, Just quickly,
2: becoming a dentist gives you options and access, which I've told everyone. You have options to start your own practice. You have options to start your own practice and work three days a week, five days a week. You can go down towards a path of owning multiple practices, like based off your lifestyle and what you wanna do. You instantly have business options in front of you to create your path any way you want. And from the access side, I don't think dentists understand the amount of access they've got to dental specific products, whether that is lending, whether that is investment accounts, dentists can get 100% financing for homes now. They get benefits across the board for everything related to the financial services field because they took the time and got the degree that was very, very hard to get. And I don't think that the business side of the dental schools could use a little education of the doctors of just being aware of what's available to you because you earn the degree. So I always tell them like, use it, like do your homework. It's not hard to check dental mortgages on your phone, right? Like make sure you're aware of that stuff because you do have options and and your degrees opened up a whole bunch of access for you that you aren't. Surround yourself with good people. You might be the best pitcher
0: in the world, but if you don't have infielders and batters, you're not going to win games. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Great segue into influencers. I've talked about on my show multiple times, those that have influenced me. I teach it to my young docs. Here's my list of uh, 10 books I've read, you know, and they're, they're different people. I've uh, mentioned uh, General Colin Powell as one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually read a long time ago a book by Lee Iacocca, the gentleman that would turn around Chrysler Corporation. So there, you know, there's a, there's someone in the public servant yeah. world, someone in the business world. Um but uh, others, uh, somebody on my show has told me about a poem and read it to me that was a sort of an influence, a daily influence. Stephen, how about you? Who's influenced you in your career and your life path?
1: You know, uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of doctors and I've learned from a lot of them. I do like reading. You know, one of the interesting books that I've read is called Titans of Dentistry. And it starts off with a line that, that's very interesting. It says, all doctors that are uh, successful are successful for the exact same reason. True. And the answer to that was mindset. Their mindset, they have framed properly. And it said that all dentists that struggle, struggle for very different reasons. And I think that's also true. And I think that is a large part that plays into, you know, you go to a place like 450 Southern San Francisco, right? There's a few hundred dentists in there. You knock on one door, one guy's doing 1.5 million, You knock on the next door, the guy's barely making rent. Right there in the same building mm-hmm. within the same demographic and essentially with the same skill set. And why is that? I think that's a big one. The other, you know, I, I do like the CE. I do like learning and education because I feel like what helps you close treatment is your ability to win over the patient with your acumen and your your confidence. John Coyce has an example, right? He does an amazing job of instilling confidence and creating a system clinically that helps you close treatment or increase case acceptance and i think things of that nature are really really important to having a very good and thriving practice
0: justin how about you influencers for you
2: yeah i mean uh parents in new in ohio and born and raised in southeast ohio luckily i was awful my dad was a coal miner and mom worked at home but I was awful at everything related to the farms. So they kicked me out, made me go to school because they knew I would have a career there. Um, so that was the great influence that I need that I was going to be horrible at that. And I think that was a good realization. But I think it's it's, you know, a lot of people, or at least the people I I try to surround myself, are really disciplined people, right? The people that will that won't go into default, they won't get into the blaming and, and complaining game. They're really just disciplined about their life. And that leads to a ton of success, bad stuff happens all the time, but you choose your own response to what happens Mm -hmm. and the better your response, I think the better the outcomes are going to be from that side. So I think those, those people are the ones that, you know, at Aprio, but luckily to team up with and personally have an awesome support staff that have that same mindset.
0: Excellent. Excellent advice and, and thoughts. Um, well, gentlemen, I can't thank both of you enough for being on the show today. I've got to have you back. There's more questions. I skipped over some that I intended to answer or ask. I should say, I've got notes over here of places I want to go, but as you know, I don't like to keep the show going on too long. So first of all, it's aprio, apri is your company's website, Please find the way to it and check it out. They have a great little connection thing at the bottom. Uh, if you scroll through, you can actually, if you want more resources, connect uh, through them. You can ask for these two gentlemen um, specifically or gentlemen, Stephen, how could someone reach out and get a hold of you directly?
1: You know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I got off Facebook because my parents got on, you know, <laughs> they, they can look me up in the yellow pages, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's
0: Steven S-T-E-V-E-N-A-U is his last name. You can find him on LinkedIn. I know I looked at him and uh, on on that site already myself. And Justin, how
2: about you? Uh, just I'm uh, more old school. Email Justin.schafer S-C-H-A-F-E-R at aprio.com. So awesome.
0: Well, gentlemen, again, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to having you back in the future. And I can't wait to connect with both of you. We both, both you gentlemen and I, we have for different reasons. We have some other friends. The world is um, growing smaller. And in our cases, it's one degree of separation, which is just incredible. (laughs) Um, So uh, thank you again, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Please follow or subscribe to this show on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube. If you would like further information or to meet with me one-on-one and discuss your practice, please feel free to contact me through my website, dentrepreneurllc.com. Many more exciting guests and topics are headed your way.